The question, of course, that is more or less an underlying question is if you do not have the law as an incentive, how do you actually discipline the people of God? How do you raise them up? How do you bring them to maturity? Or perhaps the question is, how ought they be brought to maturity? It's clear that if you can put upon people the requirements of law, then you have a way of holding them accountable. And you can, by that, attempt to control various forms of behavior. But I would suggest to you, of course, that there's much, much more to raising up a child of God than just restraining their behavior. Jesus put it this way. If a man looks upon a woman to lust after her in his heart, he has already committed adultery with her. Or if a man hates his brother in his heart, then he's already committed murder. Now, under the law, the only time you'd be guilty of either of, of those sins, adultery or murder, would be if you actually did it. If a man actually had sexual relations with a woman to whom he was not married, in that case he would commit adultery. Or if a man actually took the life of another in some premeditated fashion that would qualify as murder, then only then would he have violated the law. So one can hardly argue that the choice is between law and lawlessness. Because the greater value that the law never touches remains undisturbed. Which, which value is, beyond the law, how do you raise, how is the Son of God raised to meet the purposes for which he or she was created? The purpose is to be like God. To be like God in nature and in conduct. And that, I would suggest to you, can never be accomplished by the law. In fact, more than suggested, let me show it to you. This is from the book of Colossians, chapter 2, beginning at um, uh, verse, uh, for, the, for, for the sake of this, begin at verse 14. Here it says, Having cancelled the written code with its regulations, a reference to the law, the Torah and, uh, and the Ten Commandments, that was against us, that stood opposed to us. He took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. If you backtrack, it's pretty clear what he's saying. When you were dead in your sins and in the circumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. That's verse 13. He forgave us all of our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us, he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. So he's saying Jesus absolutely brought an end to the law, because he sees the law as that which condemns men. That's something people don't understand who want to, to go back to the law. The law will condemn you. How does it condemn you? Any time you're subject to it and do not keep it, it condemns you. Jesus, however, took all of that out of, it, out of the way and nailed it to the cross. 
So now you're not obligated to keep the law. And therefore, it doesn't condemn you. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Because you see, again, the difference is not law and lawlessness. Those are the two polemics. Those are the two poles within this dichotomy. It's the notion being, if you're not keeping the law, then you are lawless. That's nonsense. That's rubbish. It's about time we get over that sort of foolish thinking. There is an alternative that is neither law nor lawlessness. It's the alternative of a relationship to God as sons. What I'm pointing out is that the scriptures are telling you that the law is inadequate because it does not allow you to relate to God as a son. It puts you under the condemnation of failing to obey it. It goes on to say that, but I wanted to point out that Jesus took it out of the way. Therefore, verse 16, that being so, Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, that being so, let no one judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to religious festivals, new moon celebrations, or a Sabbath day. The people who have been judging you by whether or not you keep the kosher laws, people who would judge you by whether or not you keep the Sabbath, would put you back to a time before the cross. Because the cross, you see, fulfilled the requirements of law for you and took this stuff out of the way. You may recall from previous broadcasts that what I was saying was, it, God first offered the Jews something other than this. He offered them sonship to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. It's when they did not want to come into the presence of the Lord that they ended up again on, that they ended up with the law. If you have become a child of God and someone has seduced you with these Judaizing doctrines back under the law, indeed back to the law, you were never under the law, then they have emptied the cross of its purpose and robbed you of your sonship. To suggest that you can be a better Christian or be perfected by keeping the law, having been saved by grace, that's utter rubbish. It's unbiblical and it's harmful. It's harmful in the sense that it robs you of sonship and deposits you in the ranks of slaves. That's what the scriptures are plainly saying. Therefore, let no one, do not let anyone judge you with, about what you eat or drink. Listen, if you want to eat pork, you can eat pork. And whoever judges you in respect to that or whether you keep the Sabbath, they're the ones who are wrong. Now, they're wrong because these things are a shadow, verse 17, of the things that are to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility. This abuse of the body is considered false humility. And the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. You've heard endless um, intricacies about Torah, 
in recent times. The, the word consider, the Bible considers that, that form of behavior false humility practiced by unspiritual minds who puff you up with idle notions. That's pretty harsh. Such a person has lost connection with the head. They're no longer listening to the Spirit of God. He is the connection to the head. And if you fall into these idle notions, you too will find that you've lost connection to the head. Watch how your peace has been destroyed. Watch how your sense of well-being has been taken from you. And now you're scrambling to find kosher food because you think that's what makes you more pleasing to God. It says, Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish, perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But, listen to this, they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgences. That's what Jesus was saying. Jesus said, it was said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if a man looks on a woman to lust after her, he's committed adultery with her in his heart. Tell me what the law has to do with your heart. Tell me what your, your dietary habits have to do with the condition of your heart. Tell me whether or not you keep the Sabbath, what that has to do with the condition of your heart. A son of God is not one who emphasizes the restraint upon his behavior. That's for people who practice false humility, for whom idle notions about spirituality dominate their thinking. A son of God is supposed to be like God like God, one who knows God, one who walks in the liberty, freedom, and peace of their father. Not people who go back under a law which they got in the first place from refusing to come into the presence of God. Now, I've been very pointed about this. If you choose to keep observing the law after you've heard messages like these, then know this, that you've fallen for the deception that you have been brought under. It will not help you with your walk with God. And you will not become a son of God in maturity in this way. You may be already a son of God, but you will not mature as a son in this way. And your life will be consumed with trying to figure out what pleases God so that you can do it and feel better about yourself. All of this is self-righteousness. Now the question is, if this is not so, that is, if, you, if you're not supposed to keep the law, how do you raise a son of God? How is a child of God to be raised? The answer is, you have been given the spirit of your father. 
And more than anything else, the Spirit of God is responsible for raising you. And the Spirit of God will raise you in multiple ways. His forms are not limited to one. For example, part of what the Spirit of God will do in raising you into the fullness of maturity is He will begin to bring into your life certain difficulties that you must face. And by these difficulties, He will walk you through a process that results in your becoming more patient, more understanding, more kind and the like. That's, that's one aspect of it. And I'm just laying out now the disciplining of the sons of God. I'll come back through and we'll deal with these aspects in detail. But you're not just meant to become peaceful and tranquil and, uh, and, and, and those forms of behavior. Beyond that, you're meant to operate in power. And beyond that, you're meant to fulfill your destiny. So the Spirit of God has arranged the means by which the government of God and the order of His kingdom operates in your life to transform you into a responsible, mature Son of God. Now what we have seen before is that the law treated you as a slave, but the kingdom treats you as a son. A slave is always trying to please his master, but his son is raised to the maturity of his responsibility. So there are these two aspects that go into the raising of a son. One is internal with respect to your personal character and the other is external with respect to how you handle your inheritance as a son of God. So discipline and the way that the sons of God are disciplined is meant to produce internally a relationship to God that causes you to be like God. Externally, the manifestation of this is you take up more of your relationship to God and you take up more of what it means to be a mature son of God. This flies in the face of two things. One, it flies in the face of the law because the law does not recognize you as a son of God. Most people fail to recognize that under the Mosaic law, the Jews never saw themselves as sons of God. And to this day, the Jews do not see themselves as sons of God, although they keep the law. If you go to Israel on the Sabbath day, or in, in, their, in their observation of Saturday as the Sabbath, you can't find public transportation. If you're staying in a hotel, the Arabs come in and take care of you. The, uh, the, the elevators do not work in ways that they do the rest of the week. They have all these things that they do in the nation of Israel to keep the law. But nobody in Israel, no Jew, sees himself as a son of God. They're sons of Abraham. They're the descendants of Abraham, but they're not sons of God. What are you doing as a son of God, relinquishing yourself, relinquishing that estate to become more like the Jew. 
No, this is about raising sons. God has sons. They're not sons of Abraham. They're sons of God. Judaism is not the tree. The Jews were branches on the tree. The tree is the living God. The mistake that people make is that they think we have Jewish roots. No, we have heavenly roots. We have roots that are not Jewish. We have roots that are eternal. The Jews are branches, according to Paul in Romans 12, Romans 11 rather, Paul refers to the Jews as natural branches on an olive tree. The tree is the living God. Jesus said it in a different way. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. The vine is heavenly. Jesus said, you are from below, I am from above. You're of this world, I am not of this world. So, the fruit in our lives is not Judaism and the keeping of the law. The fruit that is meant to be born in our lives is already in the vine. The purpose of a branch is to give place to what is already in the vine. The fruit is God's character being born in you. That's not Jewish. It's not Gentile. There's neither Jew nor, nor Greek in this matter. It's a heavenly fruit born and on display in an earthly form. Here, it's, here it says it this way in Colossians. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with God in Christ. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of, on these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways when you, before you were saved, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, and so on. And then he goes on to... to, to he summarizes it by saying, Therefore, uh, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with kindness, compassion, humility, gentleness, patience, and the like. None of these things are the result of the law, but they are the fruit of the Spirit. For it is the Spirit of God who bears these fruit in your life. Now, how exactly does he do that? When the Holy Spirit comes into you, He begins to change your understanding. You, until He comes into you, you have been governed by your soul. When the Spirit of God comes into you, He begins to govern your spirit. There comes then to be a change in your mind. Your mind begins to be open to the things of the Spirit. And there's a new mind that is in you, the same mind that was also in Christ, because that's the mind of the Spirit. You do not obtain that mind by somehow disciplining yourself according to the law. 
you obtain that mind as the release that comes into your being when the Holy Spirit begins to work in your spirit. Now, as he does that, your understanding begins to change because your point of view begins to change. The way you start looking at everything is in relationship to how God sees things, not so much how your soul sees things. The difference is, when you look at things from the standpoint of your soul, what you look for are things that threaten you, things that threaten your existence, things that threaten your well-being, things that threaten your peace of mind. And you manage these circumstances to try to guarantee an outcome in which you are more or less unshaken by these events. On the other hand, when you are led by the Spirit of God, you begin to look at things from a heavenly standpoint. In short, you begin to see things the way God sees things. You begin to look at people the way God looks at them. You begin to see and observe beyond the, the external into the internal because the Spirit of God who searches the heart of man begins to inform you through the, spirit, the gift of the Spirit of discernment. You begin to look at a person and hear what they're saying in their hearts, from their hearts, not what they're saying with their mouths. When you begin to see how a person is thinking, then your principal preoccupation is not with how you defend yourself, but how you address the things that you're seeing. Not for the purpose of defense, but for the purpose of clarity and to bring about the understanding of the truth. So your point of view begins to change. From self-defensiveness, you begin to take on an attitude of wanting to see the truth spoken in the public place. Because you're no longer worried about your safety. You're no longer preoccupied about your well-being. You're beginning to see that God is in control of everything and that, every, that people are just playing games in which they're trying to hide what it is they're actually thinking and to begin to maneuver and manipulate things for their own comfort and well-being. Your point of view changes. When you begin to see others behaving that way, it, it really disgusts you. You begin to want to be different. And so God begins the process of training you to be different. One of the main ways that he trains you to be different is through suffering. Through suffering. In this broadcast, I will not have the time to develop the role of suffering in the life of a believer. But I will, in these ending moments, I want to tell you that suffering is one of the most vital and useful aspects of the training of a son of God. It's far more effective in revealing the in developing the character of God in you and in revealing the character of God in you than the law ever could have thought of being. The law is your ability to try to maintain the status quo, try to keep things together, try to prevent um, uncertainties from occurring. The Spirit will guarantee that uncertainties occur. Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Thessalonians. If you've suffered in the flesh, or he who has suffered 
in the flesh ceases from sin. An end to sin in the life of a believer is not to be measured by whether or not you can keep the law, because everyone knows you can't keep the law. An end of sin, though, has to do with a changed nature. The law does not change your nature, even when you keep it, even if you could keep it. But the Spirit of God is well able to change your nature. And suffering is one of the main tools by which he affects this change. So in the next broadcast, I'd like for us to seriously consider the role of suffering in the training of sons. You are sons of God, and as a result, it is the responsibility of your father to raise you to be a partaker of his divine nature and character. I'm Sam Solon. God bless you. Let's continue our discussion. Bye-bye.